On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Dossier, presented by Metro by T-Mobile. feel that the rap game is similar to the crack game no, in any no respect? No question, no question. Just like how you would get a big amount of work from a, a big-time drug dealer and he'll give it to you, and you'll work it off and give him his PC and take your PC the same way Puff hit me off with a budget, told me to go make my album, I get my PC, and he get his PC. It's the same thing, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If he want to get shiesty on me, he can get shiesty on me. If the big-time drug dealer want to get shiesty on the worker, he can do the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. It's all part of the game. Previously on the dossier. When he told me about the Biggie murder, we were we had, we had been drinking. All right, and I was like, Biggie's song came on the radio, and he was like, "Oh man, fuck that fat dude." I'm like, "Man, you don't like this? I mean, what, this is one of the best, biggest, you know, best rappers in the world." He's like, "Man, you know, fuck that guy." Then his whole aura changed. He was like, "Hey, you know, I was there the night he was killed." I'm like, "What?" You know, and then he started telling me everything. Don Vincent and Bradley Gage was getting ready to fight, man. Inside Calipatra visiting room, because they was accusing each other of calling me a jail house performer. They was accusing each other, man. I've never seen anything like that in my life. My life. You are now listening to episode three of the dossier, the secret files of the murder of Biggie Smalls. The names from the first two episodes that you need to keep track of are as follows: Special Agent Phil Carson the only FBI agent to investigate the murder of Biggie Smalls, and Kenneth Boagny, an inmate at Calipatria State Prison, explains that Rafael Perez confessed to him about his role in the murder of Biggie Smalls. For Bill Bratton, the chief's job is an opportunity to burnish his reputation as the country's top cop. Under his watch, he predicts that L.A. will replace New York as the safest big city in America. I'm the police chief. Hello. Ever there was a place that could be turned around, it's this place. G- given what you knew about it before you got here, any surprises? Yeah, it's worse. If you spend enough time in Los Angeles and you start to dig around the levers of power, you will come across interesting characters that have been embedded in the fabric of the city, like the famed Hollywood sign. When I first came across the name of Xavier Hermosillo, I tried to Google him and understand how was he sucked into the story of the murder of Biggie. He was well-connected. For a time, he was a journalist at the Associated Press, along with being a TV personality who had deep roots into the Latin community. And he had another thing. He had knowledge. Knowledge of the inner depths of the LAPD and how that machine worked. He was also a civilian on many LAPD Board of Rights hearings. Board of Rights hearings are a three-person panel made up of high-ranking LAPD officials and one civilian that determines whether LAPD officers accused of serious wrongdoing 
remain on the force or receive significant penalties. My name is Xavier Hermosillo, and throughout a a varied career, I had the opportunity to become a hearing examiner for the Los Angeles Police Commission, which runs the Los Angeles Police Department. As a civilian, and I helped adjudicate police officer discipline cases, working in conjunction with two other sworn officers from the rank of captain and above. And during the course of that, I did a number of cases that were associated with the Rampart scandal, with the murder of Biggie Smalls and associated cases. In the previous episode, Kenneth Boagney talks about testifying in the Boards of Rights hearings at the LAPD regarding Rafael Perez and the Rampart police scandal. In my conversation with Xavier Hermosillo, he will also talk about another witness, Felipe Sanchez, who was another former cellmate of Rafael Perez. When a cop gets in trouble, they have the opportunity to go into a court-like setting and plead their case. They're represented by a lawyer. The department is represented by what's called an advocate. He's like a prosecutor. And he tries to make the case for why that person should be punished, demotion, or fired. And I just learned the process. Everybody else was a lawyer or a command officer. I came out of the news business, you know, and I, I learned how to do it. And, and I don't know what the current record holder is, but at one point... I had done more boards of rights than anybody in history. My objectivity from being a reporter just went straight down the middle, and I knew what questions to ask. And so I've been involved with LAPD for, um, gosh, close to 40 years as a civilian. It's a tough job. It's getting tougher all the time. But, uh, you know, without them, where would we be? Kenny Boagney at the time was an inmate at the state prison of Calipatria, California, down in Imperial County, down by the Salton Sea. And he and another prisoner who was opposite end of the state up north of California. The reason they were involved in this particular hearing is that there is a special jail in L.A. County. They call it the Celebrity Jail. And so if you're a celebrity, like when Lindsay Lohan went to jail, any movie star gets, you know, gets arrested, or if you are a relative of a police officer, a prosecutor, a judge, they put you in this facility because if they put you in the main jail population and they find out that you're a cop, they'll beat you up. And so Boagney had been in there because uh, two of his family members, uh, one was a lieutenant, I believe, of Pasadena PD, and I forget what the other family member was. And then uh, there was another fellow who we'll probably talk about later, Felipe Sanchez. Well, I had a brother and a sister that worked on the San Gabriel Valley Police Department out there. So they're put there for their own protection. And that's where Rafael Perez was put up, two years apart, maybe three years apart. They were cellmates of Rafael Perez, the guy behind the Rampart scandal dirtiest cop probably in L.A. history. And so they were brought in to uh, to be quizzed and to testify about whether during the time that they were in the same cell with Rafael Perez, they had heard anything, picked up information that could help the police department uh, and the feds who were prosecuting Rafael Perez. And during this whole time, uh, there was a sergeant, Paul Burns, and he was the sergeant over the crash unit, which Perez and all these hoodlums were, were a part of. And crash stood for community resources against street hoodlums. These were cars that were called flat tops, no lights on top. They didn't respond to calls. They just cruised around looking for bad guys. And Paul Burns was uh, the, the lead sergeant. And to show you how dirty uh, these and scheming these cops were, they had two guys 
who would be in plain clothes cars by themselves, and they would follow this sergeant around. And when Perez and and uh, you know, the, uh, the other guys were going to caper, you know, do do bad things, they would say, "Okay, we're going to caper over here at the uh, you know the South End Rampart Division." And uh, where's Paul Burns? Well, he's over here, and, uh, and they would track him. They would follow him. And if he was getting too close to where the dirty deeds were taking place, they would put out a call uh, and say, you know, uh, uh, requesting a sergeant at such and such location, which was far away from where the capers were taking place, the dirty deeds, the illegal activities. And Paul Burns, uh, you know, guy in a uniform in the car by himself, he would respond. And just before he got there because he was being followed by the other bad guys. They would say, uh, code four on the sergeant, which means we don't need you anymore. And, you know, generally he would kind of patrol in the area and work his way back. So so these guys would buy time for themselves to commit crimes, beat people up. They would sell drugs. David Mack robbed Bank of America, $710,000, a cop. They were really bad guys. So just to be clear, David Mack, an active member of the LAPD, calls in sick and robs a Bank of America for $710,000. According to Kenneth Boagney, that $710,000 may have been used to pay Amir Muhammad for the hit on Biggie Smalls. So we had this Board of Rights where Paul Burns was accused of having been a part of the Rampart scandal since he was the sergeant. For some reason, LAPD couldn't get it through their head that they really had these these really brilliant, dirty cops who schemed to make sure that their sergeant was never anywhere near. So that was one of the border rights that I was hearing. Kenny Boagney was, you know, a street guy, okay? Sense of, uh, you know, I'm cool, I'm fearless, you know, you don't scare me type of thing. You know, we're just asking questions to try to get to the bottom of things, to try to find out about Paul Burns. You know, was he dirty? Or why would a guy with a great record like Paul Burns end up here before us accused of being complicit in the Rampart scandal? Everything was going great in the, in the, the questioning of Boagney until at one point uh, I asked him a question. I don't recall exactly what it was, but he was hesitant for the first time in, in the interview. And I, I pressed a little bit. And the department advocate, Sergeant Gary Fowler, was prosecuting the case. As Kenny Boagney, innocently, it appeared, starts to answer the question, Fowler jumps up, points in his face and says, Shut your damn mouth. You were told not to talk about that. And you know, Boagney freaked, man. The blood just drained from his face. And Fowler says, you were told not to talk about that. That's a separate case. Better keep your mouth shut. 30-some years around LAPD, I'd never seen that happen. And so I immediately, being the quiet personality that I am, jumped in Fowler's face and uh, said, Sergeant, sit your ass down. Uh, That, you know, that's uh, that's out of order. What the hell's going on? And then Boagney says, I'm done. I don't want to die in prison. And I said, well, what, what are you talking about? And he goes, I, I was told not to come here today. And then that if I did, I'd get shanked in prison, which is shanked is a term for getting stabbed. I just wanted to get away. You know, I, I've been in, in, in prison for X number of years. I forget how long it was at that point. And he said, I just want to get some fresh air. And, you know, you guys sent a plane, to, a little fixed-wing plane to pick me up and fly me here. And he goes, it's a great view and fresh air. And, and he says, but man, he goes, I don't want to die. I'd never seen that in all, all the years that I'd been doing these boards. And I mean, I, I'd seen people afraid, but I'd never seen somebody react that way. And um, Boagney didn't want to go any further. 
So I, I turned to Captain Hale, or Ken Hale. I said, why don't we take an early lunch break? We, you know, we went ahead and took a break. We came back from lunch. Uh, oh, and by the way, I, I went up to the, um, to the sergeant, Sergeant Fowler, who was the prosecutor, the uh, advocate. And I got in his face politely, and I said, if you ever pull a stunt like that, I will do everything I can to take away your stripes and your pension. Because you don't do that, okay, in a, in a hearing like that. You got a problem, you know, with, with a civilian, you deal with it outside the scope of a hearing line. So we came back, we assured Boagney that everything was going to be okay, but that he needed to tell us, you know, what was happening. I said, I'm going to ask you who visited you, et cetera. And uh, I said, just, just relax. So we came back from the lunch break and uh, we resumed the hearing. We're on the record now. Just right before we uh, adjourned, you told us the story about uh, you know being told that if you came and testified today that you would be shanked, you'd be killed in prison. Who were the officers that told you that? And uh, he goes, well, I, I didn't get their names. So I probed a little bit and I said, um, well, what did they look like? What did they sound like? Did they call each other? Hey, Bob, yeah, Dave. Uh, now they call each other partner, which is what you hear, you know, amongst cops. And uh, what would they look like? So he described them. And one was tall and thin, uh, probably about 6'5", uh, with dark rim glasses. And the other guy was a little shorter and a little plumpier uh, with a uh, walrus-type mustache. And uh, as he described, a bad toupee. That was pretty distinctive. No names attached, but, you know, you log it in the memory book. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Toni Morrison. A mesmerizing coming-of-age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman 2 will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown, to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers and seeresses, liars, and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should Payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work, and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special, or you and the wife need a scintillating night out. Every once in a while, at least. 
So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Felipe Sanchez, where is he? Tell us the story about this next witness at the Board of Rights. He also uh, had been arrested for burglary. Uh, He was also from a law enforcement family. He had two siblings who were, um, I think one was a sergeant, one was a lieutenant with suburban departments in the San Gabriel Valley, east of downtown L.A. A Latino, you know, a Mexican-American, reserved but intense individual. And so... Yeah, we started asking Felipe, uh, we understand that you were um, in the county jail with, with uh, the, the ringleader of the Rampart scandal, Rafael Perez. What was the average day like? And he said, well, you know, when the, when, the, when the LA Times showed up in the morning, he would get it first. They would give him scissors to cut out any stories that were reflected negatively on him. And, and you know, he began to tell the story, etc. And then he, as part of his testimony, started to go down a path that prompted the advocate, the, the prosecutor for the department, Sergeant Fowler, to jump out of his seat again and tell him to shut his mouth and not to talk about that. That's happened twice. Talk about lightning striking twice. Boagney testifies, you said, on a Sunday. So is this to... No, no. He flew, we flew him in on a Sunday. Okay. He testified on a Monday morning. Sanchez was on a Wednesday. And, and so we overruled him and, and said, go ahead, where were you headed? Fowler jumps up again and, and says, uh, I just want to put on the record, you know, that you're, you are a burglar and da da da. And you're, you're here today to, to testify, you know, to tell lies uh, because you've been given the deal, haven't you? You know, you're not going to serve your time. And, and yeah, he got really aggressive. I said, do you, do you happen to remember what they looked like? Well, one guy was tall and skinny, about six foot five, with dark green glasses. And the other one was a little shorter, kind of squatty, you know, with, uh, you know, with his bad hairpiece and his walrus mustache. You don't have to be very intelligent to realize the same guys went to the Mexican border and the Oregon border to intimidate these two prisoners, Boagni and Sanchez. So uh, I, I turned to uh, Ken Hale, the, the chairman of the board and captain, and I said, you know what, why don't we call a recess? It's 11.30, it's a little early for lunch, but I want to have a conversation with him. And I went up to Mr. Sanchez. Knowing what had just happened with Boagni two days before, it didn't take a lot to smell a rat. And the rat wasn't Mr. Boagni. Uh, it was Sergeant Fowler, you know, the, the advocate, the prosecutor. Uh, and it was somebody else instead of LAPD. This is not how this department runs. And so I, I asked him, I said, um, do you remember the names of those guys? He goes, why are you asking? I said, well, you know, we'd like to know that that was wrong. You know, we, we should have them investigated. And he says, what do I get out of it? I said, what do you want? And I, I was in no legal position to negotiate on behalf of the people of Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Police Department. But I knew that I had to get whatever information. I, you know, I grew up as a reporter. I'm a professional question asker. And I said, what What do you want? And he told me what he wanted. Uh, he hadn't seen his mother in four years. She was in ill health. Uh, he was going to get out in four to six months. He wasn't sure she was even going to live that long. He felt bad for shaming his family. Uh, his mother cried every day about him. And he wanted to see his mother, who lived here in the L.A. area, hopefully see his mother before she died, before he got out of prison. That was a very... Uh, 
touching, you know, request. And I wasn't sure that we could do anything like that. But I said, if I can do that, will you tell, will you, you know, tell me who they were? And he says, yeah, I know who they were. Which boy, he did No, maybe Sanchez is putting us on. But, hey, you know, a little fair trade here. You give me the right info, and I'll, I'll try to get your mom in here. When we reconvened, I told the two captains, uh, you know, we can cut a deal with Mr. Sanchez. We've arranged uh, for his uh, brother and sister, who are cops, to bring Mama down here tonight. And um, and then tomorrow he'll reveal the information. So he, he had a binder. You know, these cheap little, you know, uh, plastic binders you buy at the drugstore? Because prisoners are entitled to have their private papers with them, and nobody can touch them, okay? They're sacrosanct. And he had cut down the binding, he'd sliced it, and he reaches inside and he pulls out two business cards. Oh my God, I'm shocked. Because Boagney didn't know who these guys were. Sanchez is pulling out two business cards. So I said, what are those two business cards, Mr. Sanchez? And he says, these are the two guys that told me not to come today and testify, otherwise I get shanked. Oh my God, talk about the rush, you know? And I looked at the two captains and they're going, oh my God. And so I said, um, well, I'm going to walk over there and get those from you. And I looked at him and, you know, I'm a light-skinned Mexican, but man, I turned really white because these two cards belonged to two members of the Rampart Task Force that was developed to get to the bottom of the scandal and the corruption in LAPD. And they were a part of it. They're supposed to be investigating it. And here they were, participants in it. I'm, I'm feeling a chill just go through my body now like I, like I did that moment because, whew, man, all kinds of thoughts went through my through my head. One was disgust, one was surprise, one was fear. You know, I got to watch myself, you know, on the way home, make sure I'm not being followed. And knowing how the Rampart guys had operated, keeping track of Sergeant Burns, you know, that, that was a very scary situation. So I looked at these two cards, and for one of the few times in my life, I was speechless. What the hell am I going to do with this? And I said, well... I know what I can do without any repercussions, and you can't. I'm going to open up an investigation against these two officers because they're dirty, they're crooked. And so we took a short recess, and the assistant chief at that time was a fellow named David Gascon. Dave and I have been friends since we were little boys, and he was the assistant chief. So I called Dave. He goes, what's up? And so I told him, I said, I'm doing a board of rights. We've had two prisoners who were cellmates of Perez, Kenny Boagney and Felipe Sanchez. And I've just been given information that confirms two members of your Rampart Task Force who are supposed to be getting to the bottom of this thing are corrupt. They're dirty. And we know each other, David and I, well enough and respect each other that he didn't even say, are you sure? Or that couldn't be, you know, not at all. He says, what do you want to do? I said, I want to file 128, personnel complaint. Well, let me just say that we found Paul Burns not guilty. The officer accused and where, where Boagney and, and Sanchez testified. And sadly, the police department hounded him until he finally died. Young man. Took away his gun. They went to his house, took away all of his weapons. They transferred him to the furthest station away from where he lived. Inside LAPD, they call it freeway therapy. David Mack Mack was a member of the Nation of Islam? Yes. Okay. And he proclaimed both those things immediately after his arrest to other inmates and and to the cops as well. Okay. Uh, And had this connection to death row records. Right. uh, Which really was something he grew up with because he and Suge Knight grew up in the same neighborhood. Uh, So 
when he was arrested for the bank robbery, Russell, and, and he can tell you this, you know, probably in better detail than I can, you know, got a lot of clues that linked David Mack to Biggie's murder and linked a, a civilian associate of, of uh, David Mack's as well. Well, you know, during the uh, course of the uh, bank robbery investigation, I had uh, interviewed the uh, lead detective in charge of the invest bank robbery investigation, and he gave me a series of uh, pieces of information that uh, linked David Mack possibly to the killing of Biggie Smalls. One being the fact that uh, when they did a search warrant on his house for the bank robbery, uh, he owned a black SS Impala, and that's the same vehicle that was used in the killing of Biggie Smalls. Second of all, in his garage, which was unusual for a uh, police officer, he had a shrine of Tupac Shakur all over his garage. FantasyGuru.com is your guide to a fantasy football championship. From novice to expert, FantasyGuru.com has the data, tools, content, and experience to help you build and maintain the greatest fantasy football team ever. Over the last 28 years, FantasyGuru.com has built the largest active fantasy sports community, and they're not stopping now. Whether you want to read in-depth breakdowns of every NFL team offensive and defensive system, learn the impact offensive lines have on running back, or just need new ideas on the best way to start a fantasy football league, FantasyGuru.com has the answers for you. Join our community today and receive 20% off your membership by using the promo code RADIO20. That's radio two zero for 20% off your membership at FantasyGuru.com. That appeared to me unusual. Thirdly, uh, he had posters, memorabilia, uh, and, and it was, uh, was well-decorated inside the, uh, in his garage. And uh, gang members dressed in red, flashing the West Side uh, sign. The investigation was stymied by the chief of police, uh, Bernard Parks. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a number of clues uh, that connect uh, David Mack possibly to the killing. And uh, uh, I requested search warrants to be done on uh, David Mack's home, his financials, etc. And I was denied in doing so. And as time goes on, uh, uh, you try to figure out, well, why uh, doesn't the chief want to uh, probe any further into David Mack's life? And then you find out later, I found out information came in that uh, Chief Parks had recruited David Mack on the job. David Mack, had, he attended Oregon University and then later on attempted to make a comeback in track uh, at USC. And that's where Chief Parks... Uh, graduated and Chief Parks was known for recruiting athletes onto the police department and it turns out that where David Mack did his probation officers had contacted me and said hey it was common knowledge that Chief Parks had recruited David Mack on the job three episodes into this podcast and there is already enough hard evidence and facts to identify the suspects in the murder of Biggie Smalls. At this point, it's hard to refer to this case as unsolved. It's solved. It's just been covered up. 
time went on, and um, and one morning, pick up the LA Times and the the, the lead story top of page one on the right side. I don't remember exactly what it said, but but it was along the lines of federal judge threatens to dismiss a you know, biggie lawsuit against uh, LAPD. Uh, and then the smaller headline said, city denies that information the family seeks ever existed. Well, having done this board that involved these two guys, it was a disciplinary matter with Paul Burns, but obviously Boagney, you know, was, was part of uh, Suge Knight and the whole, you know, Biggie Smalls and and Tupac, you know, in the, in the early years. Felipe Sanchez and Boagney were visited by these two Rampart detectives, etc. And being a curious you know, reporter type, I, you know, start to read the story. And, and here I'm, I'm reading about a lie on the front page, the lead story in the LA Times. And the activist in me wanted to do something, but the pragmatist in me said, hey, the rules are the rules, forget it. But my heart and my mind kept saying, his mom and his son deserve better. I didn't know what to do. I, I was troubled, I was frustrated. I read that story again. I said, Perry Sanders, why does that name ring a bell? You mean the attorney for Miss Wallace? For Miss Wallace. Yeah. Perry Sanders. There was something about that name that rang a bell. And so I started to look him up on, on, on Google. There's an attorney that I found was in New Orleans, Louisiana. And so I have a really good memory. I realized, the more I thought about it, I realized that I think I knew who Perry Sanders was. And I had met him in 1988 at the Republican National Convention in New Orleans. And I started looking up his, his phone number. And I kept seeing different numbers, different, you know, somewhere 800 numbers and whatever. So I finally, out of frustration, you know, somebody answered in the you know, law office. And I said, uh, yeah, I was looking for Perry Sanders. And the secretary says, uh, or the lady says, uh, well, he's uh, out of town on trial. And I said, oh, we're out of town. She was in Los Angeles. Bingo. And I thought, what do I do now? I, I just uh, heard on the radio, which wasn't true, but I wasn't going to tell her I read in the LA Times because that would pinpoint my location. I said, um, I, I just heard that, uh, uh, you know, this trial and LAPD says that evidence that uh, the family is seeking doesn't exist. And uh, she says, yeah, that's uh, just really troubling uh, to Mr. Sanders. <clears throat> she says, do you know uh, anything about that? And I said, well, I said, I, I, I may. And she says, um, how is that? She goes, well, what's your name? And I said, well, I, I can't give you my name. And I didn't know exactly how to position this thing. So I said to her, I said, well, let me put it this way. I happened to be standing in a room at one point when some conversation took place about this case. And I've heard certain information. I'm in possession of certain information in my memory that says to me, this story is a lie. And she goes, sir, your name? And I hung up. And I, and I thought everything was over. Now remember, Perry Sanders is the attorney for Valletta Wallace, Biggie's mom, in a civil suit against the city of Los Angeles. The LAPD isn't covering up for David Mack, Rafael Perez, or the trigger man, Amir Muhammad. They are covering up corruption in the LAPD that would lead to a loss in a civil case, costing the city nearly half a billion dollars. Well, the next day, I get a call from tired uh, Lieutenant LAPD uh, Homicide, a longtime friend of mine, may he rest in peace, he died two years ago, Sergio Robledo. And uh, he calls me the next day and he says, um, hey, did you see that story in the LA Times? <laughs> Which one, the one about the Biggie case? And he goes, yeah. And I didn't realize he was playing me a little, <laughs> a little bit. That's his personality. <clears throat> that was his personality, yeah. One of the greatest human beings that ever blessed this earth. And a hell of a cop. And he says, Javier, 
I know you called Perry Sanders' office. <laughs> oh, man, you know, it's one of those busted <laughs> moments. And I was freaked out. And now it's not just friends. Now it's Sergeant Robledo or, or you know, former Sergeant, retired Sergeant Robledo, investigator. He had an investigation agency, a global one. And he says, you called Perry Sanders' office yesterday. I'm going, is my line tapped or what? And I said, What? And he just laughed, which is his way of saying, I got you, man. And he says, you called their office. He says, but you called their 800 number. He says, you know, when you call an 800 number, they're paying for the call. And so your phone number shows up on the caller ID. And when they called me today to say they had gotten this phone call, I recognized your phone number. And he says, you got to tell us what you know. And he says, well, federal judge knows that you know. They say federal judges can indict a ham sandwich, and you're much bigger than a ham sandwich. <laughs> he says, and then tell me what you know. I said, look, man, that evidence exists. I don't have it. It's somewhere in uh, who knows where. I said, I have no idea what that stuff is. And he says, okay, my friend, think about it. So we hung up. Now I'm mortified because this is a public trial. You know, I, I don't want to go testify. There's reporters there and stuff. And Suge Knight on trial right now for three murders. You know, I don't want to get on his radar. And as we speak, he's, he's sitting in jail, you know, for three murder charges. So then I called LAPD. I called the police commission. And I spoke to uh, one of the top people there. I, I won't identify him or her for a lot of reasons. Um, I have a good relationship with LAPD. You know, I, I probably said more than I, I should have. Uh, I know there are a lot of people unhappy with me, but I know in my heart that I did the right thing. Because I started thinking about, uh, you know, um, Biggie's mom. If somebody did that to one of my kids, I'd go to the gates of hell. So I called uh, LAPD, and I spoke to a high-ranking uh, civilian official at the police commission. I said, listen, that evidence exists, I know, because I did that Board of Rights. And I was told, keep your mouth shut. You don't remember anything. And then uh, all of a sudden one day my doorbell rings and there's two guys in bulletproof vests and I can see their sidearms, U.S. Marshals. And I can see beyond where they are down to the curb and I see a van with bars on the windows. And so I opened the door. They said they needed to talk to me. And I said, about what? They said, uh, you're coming with us. And uh, I said, where, where are we going? They said, Judge Force Marie Cooper wants to talk to you. I said, who's she? I don't know who she was. She was here in the, the Biggie case. They took me up to the judge's chambers, and uh, she wanted to know what I knew. And she asked me exactly what I remembered. I was able to say, well, there's this document, and this document, and this document, and then this investigation of these two cops, and da-da-da-da-da. And she said, do you know where that might be? I said, I have no idea. And she says, well, I'd like you to see what you can find out. I knew there was a big hammer behind that and I wasn't going to be able to BS her. So she actually asked you to find out where those files were. Yeah, she asked me if I knew where they were. Yeah. Okay? Well, I didn't know where they were. Maybe they were in internal affairs. Maybe they were robbery homicide. Maybe they were stored in a warehouse. I, I legitimately didn't know where they were. I did like 100 boards, and, and so, you know, once you were done, you were done. Out of sight, out of mind. So I went back, and uh, I got on the phone with whomever I could uh, call, you know, cops that I knew. And after a period of about a month and a half, I had a pretty good idea the documents might be. 
started up front with saying, look, I can't guarantee the finality or the accuracy of what I'm about to tell you. All I can tell you is that the information I have leads me to believe that it may be here. And so I shared with her the information uh, was a robbery homicide. And I was able to pinpoint it down to a very narrow geographic area within a robbery homicide. Certain repository where if you looked inside, you know, and you knew what you were looking for, you might come across it. And there were two uh, repositories. And they both belonged to the same detective who was the head investigator at that time on the Biggie Smalls case. And at that point, uh, she pushed a button on her phone and a gentleman answered and uh, says, yes, Your Honor. She says, you ready to rock and roll? He says, yes, ma'am. She says, come to my chambers. Here's your search warrant. Go shut down robbery homicide. Make sure everybody puts their service revolvers on their desks. She goes, I don't want to shoot out of the OK Corral. And so they hit robbery homicide. Uh, they went to the filing cabinet and the desk that I, my information indicated it would be. The detective, Stephen Katz, who was responsible for that desk, apparently refused to open it. They said he didn't have the keys when he had all the keys. And so they uh, tore the filing uh, cabinet open, tore his desk apart, and they found all the documentation, including the documentation on those two detectives who told Felipe Sanchez and Kenny Boagney not to show up because they would get killed in prison. Now, that's one document I've never seen. And the evidence that was hidden away and ultimately found in the filing cabinet in the desk, that my initials are on certain pieces of evidence as I cataloged them in, and I can tell you that there was a piece of evidence, a photograph, blew my mind and that of my fellow board members because David Mack and Rafael Perez, the leaders of the Rampart gang, dressed from head to toe in red. Red hat, red suit, red shirt, red tie, red shoes, which is the color of the blood gangs in Los Angeles. So here you have two police officers dressed in blood attire. And they're standing next to a female who is wearing a red dress with a red bow in her hair. She's cutting a cake that refers to the blood's ruling. And the woman in that photograph, it was the daughter of the chief of police. 